We're going to start a series today um, around the theme of grace. And it's a, th- it's a theme that we're going to explore together um, between now and Christmas, <laughs> which I know sounds awful thought for you, that uh, we might even be having that in mind. Grace is at the heart of our faith, but it's not at the heart of the way the world works around us. And actually, it's not even at the heart of the way that naturally we think. Some of us might struggle why good things happen to bad people. Because it feels like that's not fair. In our society as a whole, we work on the basis of justice. Um, of things not, of things going right. Of people, in a sense, getting what they deserve. And we might call it natural justice sometimes. But this idea that we want a society where there are rules. And if you break the rule, actually, you'll get what you deserve. And you can't complain because you knew about it. And it's only fair. It's, uh, I don't know what age this begins, and some of you will know because you're living through it at the moment. At what age does a child start to say... It's not fair. Five. (laughs) Yes. What were their first words? It wasn't mummy or daddy. It was, it's not fair. It's, it's, It's actually interesting, isn't it, that in such young, kind of unformed lives, with not much experience of the world at all beyond the four walls of a home, that children quickly get this idea of some things are right and some things just aren't. And fairness is a big deal. It's why some of you at birthday times will want to go, how much do we spend on the other one? And of course, it's not just parents, it's grandparents particularly, isn't it? That's that you need almost a ledger. <laughs> How much have we spent? Because we've got to be seen to be fair. Well, Jesus um, comes along and he really upsets people. And he upsets people because ultimately he talks about grace. Now, of course, if you're on the receiving end, this is really good news. But if you're either watching it happen to other people, or more particularly, if then you're called to live in this footsteps of grace, it becomes much more difficult and much more challenging. In thinking about the series, we're going to look at it through Luke's Gospel. And we're going to stay within Luke's Gospel and look at some of these areas, some of the parables, some of the actions of grace. And kind of at the end of it, what I want to happen is... For you to, on one level, simply to have a reaction of, wow. Wow. I want you to sort of go, so it is true. But on another level, what I'm looking for is, can we walk? Can we learn to walk? And I do want to emphasize this learning to walk business. Can we learn to walk a way of grace? Because it's not natural. Because what you're doing is you're unlearning that which you learned at the age of three or five. 
about things not being fair? Can we learn to walk in the way of Jesus? And might we see it make a difference to those around us? I'm going to tail end this, uh, top and tail this sermon with a story. My first story is uh, I found on the BBC News website. It was published there in 2010. And um, it's about this man. This man is called Bernard Hare. He's a journalist. He's also a youth worker. He lives in Leeds and works with some of the really hard to reach kids in Leeds. He wrote a book called um, Urban Grimshaw and the Shed Crew. Um, which, uh, if you want to read it, you can. I think it's quite ripe if, uh, in terms of language and everything else. But uh, it's a story of uh, Bernard Hare and his work uh, coming across some of these really ki- these kids who kind of are just living on the street away from everybody else. Bernard Hare. This is his story. It begins in 1982. He was a student living in London. And this is his story. The police called at my student hovel early evening, but I didn't answer as I thought they'd come to evict me. I hadn't paid my rent for months. But then I got thinking, my mum hadn't been too good, and what if it was something about her? We had no phone in the hovel, and mobile phones hadn't been invented yet, so I had to nip down to the phone box. Do you remember those days? I rang home to Leeds to find that my mother was in hospital and was not expected to survive the night. Get home soon, son, my dad said. I got to the railway station to find I'd missed the last train. A train was going as far as Peterborough, but I would miss the connecting Leeds train by 20 minutes. I bought a ticket home and I got on anyway. I was a struggling student and I didn't have the money for a taxi the whole way, but I had a screwdriver in my pocket and my bunch of skeleton keys. I was so desperate to get home that I planned to nick a car in Peterborough, hitchhike, steal some money, something, anything. I just knew from my dad's tone of voice that my mother was going to die that night and I intended to get home if it killed me. Tickets, please. I heard as I stared blankly out of the window at the passing darkness. I fumbled for my ticket and gave it to the guard when he approached. He stamped it but then just stood there looking at me. I'd been crying, had red eyes and must have looked a fright. You okay? He asked. Of course I'm okay. Why wouldn't I be? What's it got to do with you anyway? You look awful. Is there anything I can do? You could get lost and mind your own business. That'd be a big help. I wasn't in the mood for talking. He was only a little bloke, and he must have read the dangers and signals in my body language and tone of voice, but he sat down opposite me anyway and continued to engage me. If there's a problem, I'm here to help. That's what I'm paid for. I was a big bloke in my prime, so I thought for a second about physically sending him on his way, but somehow it didn't seem appropriate. He wasn't really doing much wrong. I was going through all the stages of grief at once, denial, anger, guilt, withdrawal, everything but acceptance. I was a bubbling cauldron of emotion, and he'd placed himself in my line of fire. The only thing I could think of was to tell him a story. Look, my mum's in hospital dying. She won't survive the night. I'm going to miss the connection to Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure how I'm going to get home. It's tonight or never. I won't get another chance. I'm a bit upset. I don't really feel like talking. I'd be grateful if you'd leave me alone. Okay? Okay, he said, finally getting up. Sorry to hear that, son. I'll leave you alone then. Hope you make it home in time. Then he wandered off down the carriage back the way he came. I continued to look out of the window at the dark. Ten minutes later, he was back at my side. 
Oh no, I thought, here we go again. This time I'm really going to rag him down the train. He touched my arm. Listen, when we get to Peterborough, shoot straight over to platform one as soon as you like. The Leeds train will be there. I looked at him dumbfounded. I wasn't really registering. Come again, I said stupidly. What do you mean? Is it late or something? No, it's not late, he said defensively, as if he cared whether the trains were late or not. No, I've just radioed Peterborough. They're going to hold the train up for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everyone will be complaining about how late it is, but let's not worry about that this time. You'll get home, and that's the main thing. Good luck, and God bless. Then he was off the train again, down the train again. Tickets, please, and more tickets, please. I suddenly realised what a top-class, fully-fledged doylem, I'm not sure what a doylem is, um, I was, and I chased him down the train. I wanted to give him all the money from my wallet, my driver's licence, my keys, but I knew he'd be offended. I caught him up and grabbed his arm. I just wanted to... I was suddenly speechless. I, um, it's okay, he said. It's not a problem. He had a warm smile on his face and true compassion in his eyes. He was a good man for its own sake and required nothing in return. I wish I had some way to thank you, I said. I appreciate what you've done. Not a problem, he said. If you feel the need to thank me, the next time you see someone in trouble, you help them out. That'll pay me back amply. Tell them to pay you back the same way and soon the world will be a better place. I was at my mother's side, that's his mum, when she died in the early hours of the morning. Even now I can't think of her without remembering the good conductor on that late night train to Peterborough. And to this day I won't hear a bad word about British Rail. <laughs> my meeting with the good conductor changed me from being a selfish, potentially violent hedonist into a decent human being. But it took time. I paid him back a thousand times since then, I tell the young people I work with, and I'll keep on doing so till the day I die. You don't owe me nothing, nothing at all. And if you think you do, I'd give you the same advice the good conductor gave me. Pass it down the line. It sounds so similar, doesn't it, to a story you might hear the echo of. It's a story in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel. It's verse 25. And it comes after Jesus has sent disciples out on mission and they've come back and Jesus is preparing his way to Jerusalem. And it's in that context of his death that all these stories of grace are going to come. This is a story that if you've been in church for any time, length of time at all, you know only too well. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he said. How do you re read it? And the man replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbour? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know the story really well, the story of what we call the Good Samaritan. But there is context for this story. It doesn't just sort of drop in the middle of nowhere. In the previous chapter, chapter 9, Luke's uh, told about this um, episode. At that time, as the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. Now, you probably know that Samaritans and Jews didn't get on. They shared common history, but they didn't get on. The Jews felt the Samaritans were, um, that they'd sort of like blended into the culture, that they weren't true followers of God. And the Samaritans thought that the Jews were isolationist and they... It was just a bad situation. So it's not surprising that when Jesus is going to a Jewish rabbi, going to a Samaritan village, the village don't want him because he's going to Jerusalem. And it's not surprising that Jewish disciples would go, shall we, and we've got an idea, shall we get down fire from heaven? And it's not surprising that Jesus sort of goes, no. But it, the disciples weren't being, I mean, they were being vengeful and they were being non-Christ-like, and they were being hard. But nobody in, Jer- in Jerusalem, nobody in Israel would have thought, well, actually, that's not right. Most people would have gone, boy, if we can do it to one Samaritan village, we'll do it to them all. Just a few verses before this story. The teacher in the law comes, and he asks him this question. Who is my neighbor. But it's, that's not his first question. His first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An interesting question, which is actually unanswerable. It's like you saying, how can I get in on someone else's will? Well, you can't. You can't inherit by your actions. You have to wait for the person whose will it is, who's going to die, to say, I want to include you. You can't do anything to say, I mean, you can, you can ask. But it tends to lead to rejection. Can you imagine going to a member of your family and going, you're not looking well. (laughs) And I was just wondering, is there any chance... Not many of you would be able to do that. And all of you would know you you don't do that. Because you don't, it's not your actions that inherit. Your, Your inheritance comes as grace. But Jesus, in the role of Jewish rabbi, answers one question by asking another. Woody Allen says at one point, why do Jewish rabbis always answer one question by asking another? 
And the Jewish rabbi goes, why shouldn't I answer one question by asking another? And Jesus does it all the time. It's, it's very Jewish. It's very much the way they do it. And so Jesus says, well, what's the law say? And the man says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, do that. And you'll live. Uh, but wanting to justify himself, he said, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus told him the story that we know so well. Uh, the story that's set here, that's the road. That's the road. So you get a picture of the story and the way it would have been understood. <laughs> where's the road? Exactly, where's the road? The road is actually apparent, apparently. Yeah, the road's here, all right? So that's the road, and that's the scenery. So this is a, a route that people would have known and gone, mm, you walking down there on your own, you're likely to get into trouble. And the story is that the man is walking down and he gets beaten, set upon by robbers, beaten and stripped of his clothing. The man is left half dead and naked. At that point, the man is no one. The man doesn't belong to anybody. You see a beaten up man on the side of a road, and particularly in that context, you don't know their clothing, so you don't know their standard, you don't know where they stand in society, you don't know who they belong to, you don't know whether they're one of us or one of them. He's no one. Naked, half-dead people in difficult days are easy to overlook. They still are. He's no one. So he's easy to pass by. And Jesus sets up the classic three-stage story. It's like, and we do this three-stage all the time. We do it in our own stories. There was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. Okay? It's the same, it's the same device. There was a priest, a Levite. And actually, the third is the unusual one. A priest would come. Come down. And a priest... Well, if he knew the man lying there was a devout Jew, he would have an obligation to stop. But fortunately, the man hasn't got any clothes on. He's half dead. He's easy to avoid. Because if the priest stops, there's time, there's effort, there's a cost of engagement, and there is the possibility that if the man dies... He then becomes unclean, he has to go through ritual cleansing, and it's all of that faff. Plus the fact, if you stop, you stop at a place where someone's already beaten, being uh, beat, too many there. You stop at a place where someone has already been beaten up, so what's to say it won't happen again? So the priest walks by. The Levite, who is an assistant priest, comes. Well, the assistant priest can't do what the priest has done, has not done. Because actually, what would it look like if the Levite said, well, actually, I'm better. No, you don't do that. You, you watch your boss. And if your boss avoids, then you also avoid. So the Levite also walked on the other side, ran down. Now, what the people were expecting then, what the, the, the story in their minds and the kind of, as, as people were listening to the story, what they were expecting is, and a Jewish layperson came. But of course, Jesus flips it and goes, a Samaritan came. Now, I don't need to tell you. Everybody listening 
would have expected the Samaritan to definitely have walked by. Because you don't get a good Samaritan. Not in their day. You don't get a good Samaritan because of all their hassle. And I don't want to go on about that. You know it so well. But the Samaritan stops. The Samaritan cares. The Samaritan pays the cost. The Samaritan takes the time. The Samaritan risks ostracism. When Jesus tells these stories, he's telling them to crowds. And as with all good stories, maybe if you were with me on that first story, the story on the train, I wonder how you heard it. You might have just heard it as well. That's, that's interesting. Or would some of you have heard it in a way that goes, I know how it might have felt to be that young guy. I wonder if some of you had heard it to think, I know how it might feel to be the guard. In this story, where do you see yourself? That's the challenge. Where are you in this story? Are you on the road beaten? Or are you one of the other three? Ultimately, the parable tells us more about Jesus than it does about ourselves. For Jesus comes as the outsider to the half-dead and the no-one. And he pays the price to heal and restore and bring back into humanity that which has been left behind. <coughs> Ultimately, it's Jesus who acts as the Good Samaritan and reaches you and I. An American writer uh, who's not a Christian but who writes novels, in one of his novels wrote, wrote this. Talked about love and he said, this is the challenge, to love what was broken, torn, peeling. To love what didn't work. To love what was twisted and cracked and missing its parts. To love what smelled and what nobody else would scrape away the filth of to identify. To love and hold on to it. And it strikes me that that's what the Good Samaritan did to scrape away the filth, to love what was twisted and cracked, to love what was broken, torn and peeling, to love what didn't work, to love and to hold on. But it strikes me that that's what Jesus does. All that's broken in us, all that's dysfunctional, all that's twisted, all that's dirty, all that's no one. Jesus comes, and out of his grace, he comes and loves. Paul, the apostle, in Romans will say this, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the challenge, though. The longer I go, the more I forget. Jesus turned to the teacher of the law and he said, um, okay, go do likewise. Because what Jesus knew was another world was possible. 
You've received much. I've received much. Can you go and offer it to those around you? I suppose my bigger question is, could this be social policy? <laughs> could we have a community, a society of grace? Could trains wait for people who need to see their mothers? Some of you are wired in such a way that you say, no, because <laughs> we've got a timetable. Could grace be shown to offenders? Could forgetful people be given grace instead of just being told off? Could the difficult people in your workplace have grace extended to them even though they stay being difficult? Could grace find beauty in anything? Can it be the thought that changes the world? Can it be your watchword? Can it be mine? Can it be your waking thought? The thought of gratitude for you've been included in. You who at times are still peeling and torn and broken and twisted. You've been included in. Therefore, you have experienced something and you have so much to offer to those around you. The God of grace who looked on you when you were half dead and naked and said, I love you. This is my final story. It's a story actually I told before. I told it when I first came across it. It's about a man called John in Leeds. The reason I'll tell you why I'm telling you again at the end. John was a health inspector and um, he was visiting um, a client, or uh, a client, yeah, I guess, on, on a Thursday and uh, went who had a, a takeaway restaurant type affair. This John, by the way, I met him in Leeds, is an elder at Bridge Street Church. He told me this story, it's about himself. He went to this takeaway place, and the place was absolutely filthy. And uh, John said to the owner, you're going to have to do a deep clean. I will be back on Monday if it's not deep clean. This is before the, the, the rating system, but if it's not deep cleaned, I'll close you down. John went home. The guy was distraught. He said, I, I don't know if I can do it. He said, because um, I've got a family wedding this weekend in London, and if I don't go, um, well, I can't not go. It's shame. It's a shame thing. John went home and was reflecting on his day and felt he ought to do something about this bloke. He'd never done this before, and I don't think he did it again. But he rang his house group and he said, what are you doing this weekend? Will you come and deep clean this takeaway? On Friday morning, he went round to the takeaway and he said, can you give me your keys? And the bloke said, why? He said, just give me your keys. I'll be back on Monday to do an inspection. I think you'll pass. And John and his house group went to this curry house, deep cleaned, sorted it out. He went back on Monday and he inspected and he passed it. The bloke was astounded. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? And he said, why? And John talked about mercy that he'd found and grace that he was trying to live by and how he wanted to offer it to people who were around him. And so the bloke, who was a Muslim, 
that I go to church with him? Well, you would, wouldn't you? When I heard this story, I, I'm not sure I would have believed it had it come third hand. So I'm sitting in Bridge Street Church with this guy saying, is that exactly how it happened? And he said, yeah. I said, wasn't it a risk? He said, massive. I said, why did you do it? He said, I just felt it was what God wanted me to do. Well, I've told that story a few places, but more recently what I did was I've, uh, with my work I do with uh, LICC, I, we made some small group, a small group resource. And on that small group resource, I told that story. I've had numerous people ring me up and say, that story's fiction, isn't it? And I've had to give the details of the person whose story it was, who'd got permission to do this, and say, no, that's real. The last call I had was on Wednesday from a vicar who said, I had a health inspector in my house group who said that would never happen. And I said, well, it did in Leeds five years ago. Grace. Not fair, is it? Dirty restaurants ought to just close down. Because think, what if he just lets it go bad again? What if he's not learned his lesson? What if he never changes? What if, and all those sort of questions go through our minds, what if every health inspector became a cleaner? <laughs> what would happen then? Last, last story. I was swapping my insurance this week. And to close my insurance down and to start another one, I had to pay £55. Found out that we were actually dealing with the same company as we switched insurance. So I rang my company and I said, I'm staying with you, kind of. But I know it says in your terms and conditions that it's £55 to close. And I understand that. But is there any way around this? And the bloke said, no. Terms and conditions. I said, yeah, I know it's terms and conditions. I'm just staying with you. Is there any way around? He said, no, because it wouldn't be fair to everybody else. He said, what would happen if everybody did that? I said, we'd all be 55 pounds better off. <laughs> and he said, but you'd all be breaking the terms and conditions. How much risk did God take in grace? How much risk will you take with graceful lives?